0: Hi, uh, Tom. Uh, welcome to the Historians podcast um, with uh, myself, Derek Mulligan and uh, Neil featherston Haas So um, you've got an interesting life in uh, a certain type of way. Maybe not everyone would think so uh, in a in, in field of research, but uh, it definitely takes you to some very interesting places. And uh, in, in my mind um it's it's a topic i think uh everyone will be interested in hearing a little bit some, uh, about but uh i suppose to to start off um you are a paleontological logical archaeologist is that that correct um
1: yeah, more, yeah. I'm more i think i'd be describing myself more as an archaeological scientist paleontology okay. is a little bit beyond my time limit um bearing in mind we're looking i'm looking mainly at humans so okay. um so archaeology is really my area,
0: yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, I suppose, like, what we're always interested in finding out is, like, we, we all obviously have our own personal stories that lead us into the careers that we end up doing, and you know, like ourselves, sometimes thinking about making a change in those careers later on. But yeah, tell us a little bit something about your childhood and uh, where you grew up and what might might have led you yeah. to do Yeah, sure,
1: this. sure. So, um, in terms of archaeology, I was quite lucky because um, my dad's an archaeologist, and uh, the... Um, the the intention was never to be an archaeologist on my heart my behalf. Basically when I went to um university, um I decided because I was I had an interest in it, I decided to do first stage one archaeology as well as geography and uh, and statistics and classics. So you can in New Zealand you can do various different um, uh, um first year courses, you know. Mm. And because my dad was one of the lecturers, one of three or four lecturers I guess. I tried. I sort of put a bit more effort in than I otherwise would have done. I think, mm-hmm. and as a result, surprisingly, I, I finished top in my class, and then that led on to other things. And yeah, so I kind of had a bit of a bit of a heads up in, in terms of um, my dad being already established in the field. But later on, when I did my um, master's degree, I um, specialized more in the scientific area. I was more interested in science because. Um, science can give you more quantitative answers than um, pure archaeology can be, which is characterised by a lot of arguments and debates and stuff. really Mm -hmm. wanted the quantitative side of things more. So that's what I ended up moving into. I moved into... Stable isotopes and radiocarbon dating; those are my those are my big
2: areas. <laughs> wow that that's that's what gets you up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, i oh, mate. I love it. Love it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and carbon dating takes you back about fifty thousand years. Is that about? That's about the limit
1: of it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so, um, yeah, I, I did my PhD in um, in a chemistry department in uh, in the University of Waikato, which is in the North Island of New Zealand. And uh, and initially, I was I was working on Understanding when humans moved through the Pacific Islands All Right. Mm. Used to carbon dating, and New Zealand happens to be the last place that humans arrived in terms of the Earth, um, mm. the major last major landmass to be discovered. And it was only at about 1250 AD that the first people arrived in the shores of wow, Arotearo, so very Ireland. least. Yeah. When I went to the UK in 2001, I got a job at the University of Oxford, and there I happened to meet a guy called Roger Jacobi, who was interested in the paleolithic that's the old stone age that's really eons ago we're talking about you know the last um the last sort of two and a half million years um and so he was interested in dating when humans moved out of africa and into rest of the rest of the uh, earth and so he and i formed a collaboration and i started to get interested in the older part of the radiocarbon um period so between 30 to fifty thousand years ago so i went from working on very young stuff so really we really oh, yeah. work on very old stuff and mm. trying to answer questions like when did neanderthals disappear mm. and um what happened when they met each other and mm. those kind of things so i've become interested in that and worked on that kind of ever since really
0: wow yeah and, it, and it's taken to i mean in an indiana jones type of way I just what it's, to it say taken you, yeah I, it's
2: taking you deep into IK, isn't it before we started tom i i'm saying i was, saying to, I was a few yeah. questions to ask you and the first one that popped into my head was do you wear a slouch hat and <laughs> you know go down to i'm sorry it sounds like a, a demeaning question to your career and right. your interests no, but- no, no, no.
1: The this there's is, a picture uh, of you uh,
2: holding a skull in yeah, fairness yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 exactly not a
1: maybe uh not a crystal skull but nevertheless <laughs> yeah. um but so archaeologists um when when they this question of indiana jones comes up most of the time they kind of go Oh my goodness, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. not like oh, no, 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 no. But actually, most of them kind of like kind of dig it, you know. Yeah, kind of hey, sure. So there's a mixed uh, range of responses to get. The thing is that um, whilst you know the Indiana Jones movies are really entertaining and they do they do kind of they they are a bit of a fallback to the old days when you know there was indeed a kind of a treasure hunter kind of a, a atmosphere to archaeology and you know traveling to different countries and sort of stealing artifacts i guess yeah. um but nowadays um nowadays things are much more collaborative scientific and you mm. know larger teams so instead of one person going and doing things y- you really have to mm. work with lots of other people mm. and so for example in my field i work with um i work with the archaeologists who are excavating the sites often for decades they're working yeah. on the same yeah. site and then a whole range of different specialists who work on things like understanding the type of environment and the the ancient climates, mm. what people ate, how old they were, wow. what their genetics were—a whole range of things. So you're collaborating with multidisciplinary teams most of yeah. the time. Archaeology in the 21st century is a is really a multidisciplinary effort.
0: And one of the main caves, I think that you know certainly it's mentioned, is, it's a Denisovan cave um, near yeah. the river. uh and it was the Russians who first excavated that in 1977. Yeah.
1: Is that right? Yeah, this is a really amazing site. And mm. uh, I was really lucky enough to be... Um, I've worked in Russia since about 2003, 2003, and three, four, And I happened to meet um, probably the most famous Russian archaeologist, Anatoly Derevienko, who works in Novosibirsk in the middle of Siberia, the third biggest Russian city, the capital of Siberia. And um, because um, I was interested in working on some of the archaeology that he was working on... We, um, we struck up a collaboration and I went there and started to work on material from this amazing cave called, as you say, Denisova Cave. And it's really interesting because in 2010, some years later, geneticists working in Germany managed to extract DNA from a tiny bone of a finger that belonged to a girl, probably aged about nine or 10. Right. And they found that the DNA from this tiny finger bone wasn't a Neanderthal. It wasn't a Homo sapiens uh, like us. It was actually something else. A, a, a genome that had never been found before. And because they, they only had a tiny bone and a tiny tooth, they couldn't really name it like a species. Mm-hmm. They had to call it something else. So they called it initially X woman. And then eventually they called it Denisovans. So we only have a tiny amount of these bones actually in existence. And um, the the cave is really amazing because we found evidence there for not only for these Denisovan people who... If, if you imagine, in terms of the time, that they appear in the fossil record from about three hundred and fifty thousand years ago, and they mm-hmm. probably disappear maybe twenty thousand to forty thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and we have evidence that they were the close they were close cousins of Neanderthals, but whereas Neanderthals lived in the west of Eurasia,
0: mm-hmm.
1: mainly in Europe, the Denisovans lived in the east, so they overlapped sometimes, and when they met each other, they happened to interbreed sometimes. Yeah. So. Oh. A lot of sex in the Stone Age. A yeah, you know, sex in yeah.
2: the Stone Age,
1: yeah. Yeah, which was a very it was a very um big surprise um to many people because before two thousand ten we had no evidence for this. Um it's only after that that nuclear DNA extracted from Humans like us and um, and Neanderthals, and then Denisovan showed that there was some DNA that we shared, and we must have interbred with one another. So yeah, Denisova Cave is an absolutely stonkingly important site, and I'm really lucky that I that I that I um, work there. Although recently things have taken a bit of a I'm I just yeah. going to ask
2: that, Tom. Yeah, without you know going yeah. off on a tangent really, but is is it yeah. is this the the sad uh, aspect of of modern politics yeah. is that some of these sites then become yeah unassailable you can't get in there is that yeah it's been
1: difficult it's been difficult obviously mm. and um uh, you know our russian colleagues russians generally now can't get visas to come to europe and yeah. i was supposed to i mean i usually go once a year to the site to work mm. on material there and this year of course we couldn't go um it's a small thing compared to you know the, mm. the terrible things going on in ukraine mm. i'm not at all sure but we're hoping that you know eventually things will get back to normal and mm. um our Russian colleagues are still mates, and you know, we, right. we still, yeah. still email each other, yeah, and we're still working stuff. But, um, yeah, well, there's, a, the,
0: there's hardcore investigation work involved in it as well. Because, you, like, when you're dealing in a cave, there's lots of animals and things that would actually move, yeah. you know, pieces of bone further down, and trying to date and
1: make sure you got all the timeline right is, is tough, right. It's a huge challenge. That's true, because in these caves that humans lived in, you're right. You also have things like hyenas living. Wow. Incredibly, yeah, hyenas, you know, weren't just confined to Africa in these these times of you know 40 to 200 thousand years ago. They also lived throughout Europe and the British Isles as well. Um, so um, they, there was. Uh, um, the presence of these animals and often what they do is they dig nests in these in the ground and they mix up animals uh, other bones and other human evidence and uh, so humans and hyenas and bears also mm. they kind of swapped turn and turn about in these caves and so a lot of the bones we find that humans deposited they've been chomped up later by by animals like hyenas so there's a lot of the bones is in small, small bits uh, and
2: so yeah. they can be difficult to interpret what it is yeah, yeah. okay I, I, how do you like i mean to 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 people like us it would just look like bits of you know material on the ground how like is it like find, finding a, a gold flake in a seam in a rock is it something that almost. jumps out how yeah. do you
1: know yeah almost i mean these uh, sites are quite full of these animal bones in fact between 2004 and 2013 135,000 fragments of bone were excavated from these sites and hundreds and hundreds of stone tools. And sometimes the archaeological layers are quite rich and other times they're quite empty and there's what we call sterile layers where there doesn't seem to be any humans there at all. And so what we try and do to try and date when the humans were there is try and find human bones or try and find little bits of bone that have cut marks from stone tools so we know that the humans were there and they were cutting up the bones. So we can radiocarbon date those types of materials and say, this is a date for when the humans were at the site. So there are ways around it. But you just have to work very carefully. Mm. And also look, look carefully in the site sediments to see if there's any evidence for um, you know, fires and fireplaces, hearths and things like that. Mm. Also, like Denisova Cave is amazing because it's got, it preserves DNA very well. So in the last couple of years, scientists have been able to extract human DNA from soil. And so we can actually get evidence from Neanderthals and Denisovans and Homo sapiens like us at these sites okay. by virtue of DNA from soil sediment. It's an incredible feat wow. that we can do this. What? And, you know, it, it's, yeah, it just blows your mind how That's science incredible. is able to tell us about these things. Now. And
2: does that then leak into criminolo- criminology then? Like, is this yeah. these advances helping uh, law enforcement in modern times? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, these 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 advances. I mean, you know, it, genetics and DNA is is a, a major tool, as you know, in forensic science. And uh, you know, th- there are there are scientists now working in um, lots of different fields using genomics, um, from forensic sciences to environmental sciences. In fact, some colleagues of mine are actually testing this new method that they have now of. Of, of actually extracting DNA from the air, believe it or not. Gosh. So they, they can actually take DNA yeah. and it, they use special silica that, that sort of absorbs DNA that's literally floating in the air. And they've been testing this in Africa and they've been able to find species of animals that that they can detect just using airborne DNA oh. to identify what types of animals there are in some of the African forests, right. even though they can't actually see those animals without spending weeks and weeks and weeks you know camping out and stuff. Yeah. So we can also use DNA and um, extract DNA from lake sediments to look at ancient trees and plants. In fact, this has been around for quite some time. Back in the late 2000s, um, colleagues of ours in Copenhagen they, they drilled right down through the Greenland ice sheets about two and a half kilometers until they hit the bedrock. and at the bedrock underneath the ice on Greenland, they took out some soil sediment. And they analysed the DNA and they found that there were tropical plants that had grown on Greenland before the ice sheets had covered about 108,000 years ago. So it's amazing what you can do with DNA now. And the science has really accelerated recently.
2: It's a strange dynamic, isn't it, Tom, that you're speaking about stuff that's quite ancient, beyond the word ancient, but yet it has applications into the future.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's always the case in archaeology that... People working in other fields give us these benefits and insights. So, for example, look at CT scanning. You know, you go to the hospital and you go through one of these CT scanners, right? And you get your whole body checked and slices, computer slices are made and you can see into people's brains and see if they've got tumours and stuff. Well, archaeologists love this technology because you can look inside mummies. You uh-huh. can look inside booms. You can tell lots of things from non-destructive analysis using these types of um, techniques, CT scanning. And there are lots of others, you know. So we're lucky we benefit from advances in science made across disciplines to actually enable us to do um, better um, um, study of the past. So it's a great time to be working.
2: Absolutely. And you mentioned mummies there, which would, like, you know, I don't want to hug all the questions, but I don't, like, there's so many, Tom. And we're, you know, know. we, we, we (laughs) but anyway, without meandering too much, mummies, you worked on, on... Pharaohs, no less.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did um, actually, uh, because, you know, with radiocarbon, you can work on anything between the modern day and 50,000 years ago. So we, um, a few years ago, I was sharing an office in the University of Oxford where I used to work before I came here to Vienna and a year ago. Um, and I was sharing an office with uh, an Egyptologist and with another friend of mine who's a, who's a radiocarbon specialist like me. And we, we had this conversation and there was a publication that had come out which said that radiocarbon dating in Egypt didn't seem to work. And he was like, is that true? And we were like, that doesn't sound right to us. And the reason that they, they thought it didn't work was because when they dated pieces of material from, um, from the tombs of pharaohs, often the radiocarbon dates weren't exactly in agreement with the historical age. Right. And so a lot of people suggested there was a real reason for this. And that for some reason, radiocarbon dating didn't work there. So we were a bit skeptical. So We started to do some work on it and we did this big project in which we checked the radiocarbon dates of ancient egyptian pharaohs right through the last three and a half thousand years and we found that where we had good historical dates the the radiocarbon dates agreed quite well but as you go back and back and back into the old kingdom of, of of egypt so you know back two and a half thousand bc you start to realize that the historical dates aren't actually that well known so, for example, they'll say in the historical records, oh, this pharaoh lived for 120 years and, you know, died at the age of 150. And you think, actually, that's probably not true, right? And so we found that the radiocarbon dates we got helped to improve the chronology of ancient Egypt. And uh, still a lot of work ongoing, but um, it was a lot of fun because we were able to travel around to different museums and, mm-hmm. you know, go and take samples from, you know, Tutankhamun oh, and II and all this stuff. In fact, one of the best things I'll tell you was... I went to the Louvre Museum in France to take some samples from this tomb of this very famous um, uh, pharaoh um, uh, queen called Hatshepsut. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well,
2: I've been to her temple in yeah. Egypt, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh my God, isn't that amazing?
1: really In the Louvre, they have this amazing collection of material from Hatshepsut. And when you go there, you sort of make an uh, appointment to, to go and take tiny bits of material for dating from some of her funeral um, material. And... Um, we went into the. Um, we were able to go into the museum uh, on a Tuesday when it was closed to the public, so we were able to walk around and and um, literally have the Louvre to ourselves, open the cabinets, mm. take out material. Oh my god! It was absolutely unforgettable. So yeah, it was a great experience. I was we very lucky to do this kind of work. That's
2: the good stuff, and and you know, you just mentioned there. That, you you were in Egypt like so you, with your work you get to travel to all these places as well
1: yeah yeah true well first of all you have to get you have to get the money to do it ah. so we have to we have to constantly write research proposals and, okay. and submit to different agencies and uh and sometimes you get them funding and uh, sadly other times you don't ah, okay. they're a bit of a bad run at the moment I've had about five I think quite good ideas mm. and they've been down, so you, have to keep oh, priming, you know, it's a bit like banging your
2: head against a
0: brick wall, yeah, right on. yeah. okay, <laughs> absolutely. And I, I suppose the, the, the theory that, um, you know, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, you know, were completely yep. separate and didn't breed that is now out the window, they, they definitely did. Uh, would yep. there be an argument to say that they? weren't neanderthals weren't bred out but perhaps bred into homo sapiens
1: yeah i think that's a very good suggestion and um certainly one that a lot of people think probably happens so the idea here is that instead of them not meeting at all or not interbreeding at all as you say we have good evidence now that neanderthals and homo sapiens interbred not just once several times we have evidence at least three three times that modern humans um, interbred with Neanderthals. And uh, so on average, we've got about two and a half percent of our our genome is from, is derived from Neanderthals and it's the same right across the world, albeit in Africa where there are slightly lower amounts outside of Africa, where Neanderthals lived, we have quite good consistent um, amounts of DNA right across regardless of whether you're from China or from Papua New Guinea or from Portugal or from Ireland, you have very, very similar amounts. So Mm. one suggestion, one possibility is that um, when Homo sapiens met Neanderthals, Neanderthals we think were present in quite low population numbers compared to Homo sapiens. So it's quite possible, I think, that instead of completely going extinct, well, they did go extinct, but completely going extinct without much in the way of involvement on the part of modern humans that they may have become assimilated into populations and began to live with those groups uh, of homo sapiens. And that, um, um, rather than, you know, immediately going extinct, that there might have been some assimilation. And that DNA has remained not at not at the highest levels, but it's still remained at a fairly consistent rate through the le- next uh, 40,000 years. So we all have about the same amount of Neanderthal DNA now. And the question is, what does this DNA, what does it do? What what does it give us? And, and so geneticists are now teasing apart what this DNA um, that we've inherited does. And sometimes it's negative, unfortunately. We get certain DNA from Neanderthals that gives us problems like um, the diseases of lupus. Um, Smoking addictiveness is apparently... Diabetes (laughs) type 2 diabetes is also a problem what we get from Neanderthals. um, But there are some benefits. Um, For example, um, we have slightly um, improved quality of skin and keratin hair derived from neanderthals too so we're just getting to the bottom of what all these things mean
0: that's truly fascinating stuff it, ca- sorry you?
2: could i did i hear that correctly that that neanderthals had a smoking habits yeah <laughs> did I, that... yeah no i mean <laughs> did i hear so, that right so basically here's what they do yeah
1: they take um these geneticists they they have the genome of neanderthals and they compare it with um the dna of um of modern people and in some places like for example in the uk there's this massive biobank where people have had their genome sequenced. And they've also answered a huge number of questions about what they do um, on a day-to-day basis. Like, for example, do they get sunburned easily? Um, mm. How long do they phone? Do they smoke? Mm. Um, do they have um, problems with this, that, and the other? And so what they do then is they correlate the Neanderthal parts of the genome with these types of behavior, and they're able to figure out whether or not these Neanderthal-derived genes have actually got um, implications for modern behaviour, and so, for example, just to take one one example of this, um, if you have um, if you're a morning person or an evening person, if you like getting up in the morning and working, then that is actually quite highly correlated with Neanderthal gene and Neanderthal wow. gene variant, mm-hmm. and it's the same with smoking addictiveness. So Neanderthals weren't actually smoking, but the gene that helps to explain this mm-hmm. was actually. Derived from
0: Neanderthals. Jesus, Tom, I'm feeling quite Neanderthal at the moment,
1: but I
2: did give up smoking years ago, so that's okay. But unfortunately, no,
1: it's I bad for you. Yeah.
2: It is. We were just discussed, because I'm a smoker, unfortunately, so we were just discussing that before we came on, so I'm, I'm even more worried now. <laughs> um, I actually, I read recently somewhere, ta- I, d- I don't know if yeah. you can back this up, you, you, you talked about if you're a natural early morning riser or or a, yeah. a night owl. I subscribe to this theory. I'm absolutely a night owl. No, no matter how many yeah. hours of sleep I get, I always, I'm always i always tired and groggy in the morning, but, you know, one yeah. o'clock in the morning, ping bing. That's that's my zone, you know. And I read somewhere somebody was telling me recently it's because around campfires back in the day there was a knack, you know, the tribe around the campfire twenty four hours a day, yeah. and the people that stayed up late, yeah, at, during their shift, if you like, they you know watered down to become people like me, whereas the ones like my wife who were up crack a dawn, hit the ground running, they were the ones that is the, is that does that make any sense think, or?
1: Uh, I don't think um, there's evidence to support that one way or t'other. other. Mm. Um, but as I say, in terms of this, these Neanderthal gene variants, there is a link um, between um, the presence of certain variants that are derived from Neanderthals and chronotypes, the type of person you are during the day. Um, but you're right about the, the fires generally. Um, you know, this was a, a development that we see in the archaeological record that took place perhaps around three hundred, three hundred and fifty thousand 350,000 years ago. And it had some significant breakthroughs because, as you say, it allowed the extension of the day, the 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 involvement of discussion, sort of gossip, um, mm-hmm. chat, mm-hmm. play, imagination, and it's argued to have probably sparked a bit of a revolution in cognition in humans. And also, of course, it led to the ability of humans to cook food, which increased the nutrition of the of the food that they were able to to, 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 to take, mm. and also allowed them to. Um, to, to produce a range of different types of food instead of just eating meat that was raw, which they had actually had to do before. So mm. fire was one of the key steps in the development of the human condition, no question about it.
0: Yeah, and I think nutrition I think nutrition that we have these days, all our children are all taller than we are by yes. <laughs> significant demands, yeah. you know? Yeah, that is, it's, it's that's kind of interesting.
1: The thing it also yeah. fires up the brain, of course, as well, because you need a lot of energy to fire your neurons and make you think and make you act. Okay. So Meat and and meat consumption by cooking is very important to, as I say, development and human conditions.
2: So it's it's not our imagination. The kids seem to be taller, they have better teeth. Um,
1: It's actually true. Yeah, it's actually true. And funny enough, getting back to um, the archaeology, you can detect um, there are certain genes that are linked with um, height. And um, analyzing DNA from people over the last 10,000 years has shown that it's possible to use these. Diets, into understanding about changes in human height and robusticity over the last 10,000 years. And you're right, as diet has improved, um, so has human height. And we see this even recently. Um, for example, there's a lot of evidence to suggest in Japan an increased height amongst Japanese um, young Japanese people because of a change in their nutrition status and eating a lot, a lot more um, in terms of this high-nutrient, high high-protein meat-based uh, foods over the last uh, 70 to 80 years has changed the height of Japanese youngsters. Um, and you see this again and again in different, in different parts of the world. So there is really something to it. And, you know, you only have to go into an old pub in the UK yeah, and you yeah. see the highest of, yeah, of these four yeah, yeah. to realise that people were a lot shorter back then. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. And, and there's something else with history is full of, you know, obviously catastrophe and also full of happy accidents. And and we can't explain them all. I mean, at, at the, I suppose that at the end of the last ice age would be one fourteen thousand seven hundred 14,700 years ago. Uh, temperatures increased by seven to 10 degrees. Is that right? And there's no yeah. scientific explanation yet for that. Uh,
1: so it's it's likely that it involves um, a change in the, um, the so-called North Atlantic deep water circulation. So you may know that um, the reason that um, parts of Western Europe are nice and warm and, well, reasonably yeah, warm, Gulf um, not in ice age conditions, yeah. because of the, um, the circulation that comes from um, the Caribbean largely and this deep water circulation that comes up and provides um, warm water, that cool that that heats um, these parts of the world, and without that, when that turns off, and when there are major changes in ocean circulation currents, that can have significant impacts to um, to, to the temperature. And so, um, at around fourteen thousand seven hundred years ago, as you say, there's something happened, um, and it's almost certainly something to do with uh, changes in the salinity of the North Atlantic Deep Water current that switched it off, and there was a sudden flick and sudden change, which we see in the Greenland ice core records. These are amazing detailed annual temperature records that we managed to extract from places like Greenland and Antarctica. Um, And so the climate suddenly switched. And I remember very clearly when a paper came out about this, a scientific paper was published in, I think it was 2003. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh my God, this is incredible. You can see climates switching incredibly fast. In the space of three years, all of a sudden this temperature goes spiking up. And it fills me with a bit of dread because, of course, nowadays we have the potential mm. for climate disaster coming yeah, our way yeah. unless we change our behaviour very soon. Mm. So there are lessons from the past for the future.
2: Yes, absolutely. sure, sure. Ab- Absolutely. But you sounded a kind of a positive note there. I thought we'd pass the point of no return, according to Greta and, and some others, that, you know, it's already too late. You, know, you can switch off all the lights you want, but we're It depends we're on who you talk to. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I think every tonne of CO2 we don't emit um now makes um the chances that we will be able to adapt to these big changes um more likely but you're right that there are changes that are happening in fact we're already part of the way through and we're experiencing them now you don't have to turn on the tv to see that
2: Absolutely.
1: so um i think we don't we shouldn't be um going into kind of a disaster mode and thinking there's nothing we yeah. can do yeah. still need to fight because everything we do Will make our future life more manageable, and we'll be able to adapt better to it with, um, you know, improved technology and so on. Mm. And um, and so we still have a, a great deal of work to do. But hopefully we've turned the corner and we can avoid these dangerous tipping points, as they call. Excellent. Yeah. Good news. Good it's, news uh, to
0: hear. It's great. I mean, it's fantastic that you do, you know, you put all your research and your ideas into, a, you know, an accessible book. You mm, know? So, yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, to, to give it a plug, uh, well,
2: I suppose you won't be on video, but the, <laughs> it is. It really it's, is. It's is, it's just one of those books. So, yeah. it, I mean, the, you know, I'm writing myself. The trick is always to get the stuff that's in your head. That you yeah. know so well, down to to the common person who's going to just pick up this book off the shelf, and you've done it. You've done that. You've achieved that. The jargon and everything is great, and you know it's 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 bedside reading, like it yeah. really is.
1: I really appreciate it. You know, I I I never thought I was going to be able to write a book, and then uh, I, I I gave this. Um, I was invited to go and give this series of lectures around New Zealand uh, in 2015, and after each talk I gave, which was largely about the stuff we've been talking about in terms mm. of ancient humans. People would come up and they often say, "Is there a book you can recommend yeah, about?" Uh, yeah. and I was Like, no, there isn't really. I'm sorry, it's only just recently been discovered. So I thought I'd, you know, try and put something down on paper. And uh, it is a, it is a bit of a tr- difficult task to do because at the same time as you know, well, satisfying some of my academic colleagues, course, who also yeah. want to make it an accessible book. So I tried to bury more scientific jargon in the footnotes so that you can skip over them if you want to mm. um, but hopefully it's a readable book and it's oh, got a nice word. Yeah. yeah absolutely
0: 100%. yeah has been fantastic well, listen Tom I mean we could talk to you for I, lots more I'm sure <laughs> hopefully we maybe will at some point but, be- but before we start I just have to ask sorry yeah, I, I just you know I
2: just in the sleeve notes here that you had worked on the remains of Richard III mm. yeah this is the chap a- found in a car park
1: that's right. That was amazing because you know, initially they wanted to um, radiocarbon date the bones that they found. So we, as well as another lab in Scotland, were sent the bones to date. So we dated them, and what we found was that the dates were about fifty years older than the dates of Richard III. And so we thought that's a bit interesting. Is it really the? Is it really the bones? And then we realised that there was um, some additional information that we can get from the so-called isotopes, which are influenced by the diet. And it turns out that if you eat things like fish from the sea or from the river, your radiocarbon date will be older than it should be. So we were able to take this into account. And when we calculated how much old carbon was present, we got a date that was exactly the same as Richard III. So anyway, we sat on this, but we we kept the ribs that they sent us in our lab because we always archive the material. And then about five or six years later, Someone was saying, "Oh, I see they're going to bury the remains of Richard the Third in uh, Leicester Cathedral." And, and we suddenly realised oh, hang on a second. oh my god, we've still got some of those rib bones in our i gonna get them back. i gonna send them back, otherwise it's gonna be really embarrassing. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> luckily they got back in time to be buried with a good king, so So yeah, you, you don't
2: know. you don't have any of those ribs hanging around. <laughs> just as brilliant. No, sorry, one one yeah. very last question, Tom, we we'll let you go. Yeah. You've been very generous with yeah. your time and thank you again oh, for coming on Hipstorians, but you worked with Mr. Attenborough.
1: Oh, mate, that was one of the best things, you was know. Um, now, I'm so, glad you asked. Yeah, i yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we were doing this program about um, Madagascar, because, you know, when he went to Madagascar doing his first TV program, his, um locals brought him this broken-up um, elephant bird egg. You know, elephant bird egg is about that big. And uh, he took it back to London, to the Natural History Museum, and they helped him put it back together. And um, later, he did this documentary about, it's called Edinburgh's Giant Egg, and um, we were asked to do the radiocarbon date to figure out how old it was. So I had to go down to David's house in wow. Richmond and, wow. and take a sample. And um, it was hilarious. We had such a great time. His daughter was there and she looked after me and um, you know, gave me cups of tea and stuff. And I took a small sample out of the out of the egg and then went back and we dated it in the lab. And we found out that it was about 900,000 years old, wow. which meant it was one of the last elephant birds alive. And so David came up to um, to the lab to do some filming for the day. Oh, my God. He was just the best, nicest person you could imagine. I'd, Im- well, it's, I'd, imagine, it's
2: like, he, I'd imagine what you see on TV is like him in real life. Yeah. Totally. You know, time mm. for everybody.
1: Yeah. Always, always t- telling nice stories and so polite and happy and yeah. just interested and motivated. So we had all day. We had lunch together. We just oh, hung man. out. It was marvellous. Yeah, it was a marvellous day. Never forget it. Never forget are it. They're the
2: moments that keep you going, Tom.
1: Totally, yeah. Totally, very, very lucky to. Have
0: done well, that. listeners, read the book. Yes. Uh, Tom Higgum, the world before us. Uh, do check it out, and uh, thank you so much, Tom. Really, yes. it's been a, a real pleasure. That was a mind-blowing
2: uh, experience. Yeah. Really, it yeah. would yeah. take a, a lot for that to to, yeah. to cipher down. Good. You know. Well, it's a pleasure to talk Into to you the guys. DNA. Yeah. Yeah
1: keep up the good work and um, thanks very much for being interested in all the stuff it's great
2: and I hope it was you know entertaining and interesting to you as well that we haven't asked you all the obvious questions I hope we're doing something right
1: no no absolutely it's great I'm really um, I'm really impressed and thank you so much for for, 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 for inviting me onto your programme you're welcome take care bye 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 all the best okay bye thanks Tom